Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. And welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 185, Struggle for Recognition. Happy early St. David's Day for those of you listening as this comes out. If you are in Wales, I hope you all had a good day, even if it's still not a public holiday. If you are like me and very much not in Wales, I would recommend Welsh cakes as something you might want to consider making as they are a family favorite and really easy. So this is going to be a bit of a different kind of episode for me as we're kind of going away from the typical chronological telling of history in Wales. We're going to hop around a little bit, uh, but we're going to stick in the early modern period. And specifically, we're going to talk about um, the absence of and the telling of the story of women in history in Wales. Dr. Bethany Hughes once said, women have always been 50% of the population, but only occupy around 0.5% of recorded history. In archaeology, women feature quite heavily in art and in burial practices. In those places, women have always had a role, and one of the most famous prehistoric burial sites in Wales was a woman who was, of course, buried with her amazing gold cape, which we featured a very long time ago in this podcast. Women still had high status in Britain, at least until the Roman period, with the rise of important figures such as Boudicca. They held high status at least in some aspects and in some tribes. We cannot, of course, make judgments that that was accurate through all tribes or through all situations, but certainly it existed. With the arrival of the Romans... And as we saw across most of European recorded history, almost immediately we reached a literate history that loses women's voices for the most part. Some, like Dr. Hughes, speculate this may be due to a change in how territory was gained and the advent of more militaristic societies, which would create strong men at their core. This would supplant the idea of a female-led society, and to some extent would supplant other power dynamics. Again, this is supposition and a considered ideal, not necessarily one that's borne out, 
but it is one that we can somewhat sympathize with. But if we do look at our early myths and legends, it is also noted that they are very much male-dominated, such as the Odyssey, the Iliad, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, as well as others, central characters are predominantly male. So likely this idea of the male as the head of a household or head of uh, a group or a tribe certainly was something that predated history and the way humanity viewed power and those who led adventures and battles was likely illustrated through this. This was not something specific to written history, but certainly existed before it. Yet, even if that sidelines women for a time, it does not completely shut them off from history. However, typically it is because they are models of the way to behave or perceived as being an example to their people or an example of what not to do. That is how they become perceived in society and in history, rather than being along the lines of a Herodotus or even Julius Caesar writing about his wars Gaul. As Hughes puts it, a lot of women that we think of, like Cleopatra or Helen of Troy, one of the reasons that their stories have lasted is that they are portrayed as highly sexualized. They are exciting, but the danger of their influence is also become a more warped morality tale. We remember them as creatures who draw men towards their beds and towards their deaths. The reality is, Women feature heavily in history of the world, in actuality, I should say, but they're often in the background through no fault of their own, much like the poor who are often ignored by writers of history or writers of chronicles or writers of stories. These people don't matter to what they're aiming to do, which at the time, and certainly up until the modern era, was to feature strong leaders, you know, very noble religious people or, you know, someone who is preaching a philosophy may not use women who they perceive differently or look at differently or just aren't of the same gender. Some scholars argue that they may be specifically writing them out, ignoring their contributions or seizing credit for something women had come up with on their own. This is not surprising, considering what has happened in some cases that we know of in modern history, such as female scientists such as Mary Curie, who was ignored or straight-faced, given no credit because it was argued she was little more than assistant to her husband, which, of course, we know categorically that was untrue. In a way, this is one of those difficult discussions where we have to compare groups that are not the main feature of history or the stories of the past, how do you respect them? How do you quantify them? How do you give them the appropriate time and coverage while not really having a lot to go on, or in my case, not having a relationship to that gender to pull from my own experience other than through the experiences of others? In one respect, we are forced to view them through lenses that are not their own. From male-dominated stories, the history of women are often seen as background characters or as MacGuffins to stories and to history rather than 
players in it, a name or a lineage that might be important, but the person may not matter outside of that. All of these things are important to us now, but back in the days of Bede or even further along in in the more modern writings that we'll see later, they're still just a name or they're still just a mentioned because of their links to other people. Thankfully, there are reasons why this is not always the case, be it strong women who cannot be ignored and are put in positions of power that leave them as outliers to the norm, for example, Elizabeth I. Women in those roles had to play at being men, in quotes, at least for outward appearances, because so much of society's viewpoint saw women as weak or emotional, or soft. Thus, you have Elizabeth saying, though the sex to which I belong is considered weak, you will nevertheless find me a rock that bends to no wind. Archaeology, of course, helps us to a degree because it gives us the day-to-day that survives because of the frequency of use. The valuable or rare things make up a much smaller percentage of what we find when archaeology is done. The past creates mostly from our day-to-day way of life. It is almost shocking when we find evidence beyond that. For every pharaoh's tomb, there are literally millions of pottery shards littered around the world that represent the day-to-day activities of average people living their lives. Yet, even with that, It is only really in modern historical study that the place of women has become something to be focused on beyond the pale examples that we do have. They are trying in some way to increase that percentage of history that is left blank by ignoring 50% of society. And today we're going to talk about how women dealt with their roles in early modern Wales and how they continue to affect society as a whole while being perceived as not being important to society. So, where do you find evidence of the lives of women in early modern Wales? It is often the case that you have to look in the cracks of society. Court cases due to criminal behavior, wills and probate disputes, and in some cases, in rare examples, where the activity of women is lauded or loathed in the writings of others. Remember, it is because of Henry Tudor we are forced to understand and learn about his mother because he's forced abroad and is the great heir to the Tudor throne. His mother is a powerful landholder and had kept his story present. So thus having her as an example and as an advocate for him is incredibly important to his overall story and the story of that the Tudors were pushing with their agenda. Her inheritance of her family in Tudor lands meant she was able to marry someone who was her equal in political maneuvering and behavior. Her ability to continue to influence the Yorks saved her son likely from being forced into the hands of either the English or the French before he was ready to return. Today, we're going to feature a few different women, thanks to the work of Dr. Lloyd Bowen, who I will be relying on for this research as he did a marvelous job in in defining them. But even he acknowledges that it's difficult when you are coming at it from the perspective he is to give it 
true justice. So keep in mind that that my perspective obviously is colored by my situation and my worldview. So I certainly will not be a great example of understanding everything that, that these women went through, much like I don't necessarily understand the travails of Owen Glyndur or people who were on the periphery of society in the medieval period. I don't necessarily understand the lives of women, but I will at least try and give them some history so that you have some understanding of at least some of their experience. Our first example is Mary, uh, and I'm going to try and get these names correct, so if, if I don't exactly get them correct, please forgive me. Mary Buckley, an heiress of the wealthy Welsh aristocratic Buckley family, she was married into the family. They were based in Anglesey, but Mary was English and was from Lincolnshire. From a small noble family there, she was, for her benefit and for theirs, made a maid of honor to Elizabeth I, thus making her a very important marriage match because of her connections to the crown. In a period where alliance, land, and social status determined by marriage it was critical to marry well in the eyes of your peers, be you male or female. Richard Buckley, a wealthy Welshman in the court at the time, would offer her family a marriage, one that would be advantageous to both. Mary would become his second wife after the death of his first during childbirth. Richard was much older than her, something that we're going to see is very common, and he represented an area that was dominated by the Welsh language residents, and as an English-speaking landholder, she would likely be seen as an outsider for that reason. Her husband, Richard, was someone who was easily angered and often made rash decisions, such as cutting off his children from his first wife from their inheritance over his eldest son marrying someone he did not approve of. The boy had married someone likely below what Richard thought as is his station. He called her a cottage girl. I'm not sure what evidence we have that she was actually of not noble birth or not a gentry member, but that's his description of her. And because of that, he took out this anger at this boy or this man at the entire family going so far as to demand that the young man renounce his marriage and do what he was told before he could retain any links to his parents, including any financial remuneration. Mary may have benefited from this anger, but she had to help her own children in the face of this wrath. Often Richard's control and general fickled nature seemed to toss all of his family members into a pot and then stir him up. Mary would then be forced to try and keep control of the situation and survive without losing her own place, which is a remarkable achievement, one in which she held on to at least up until his death. On the death of Richard, the control and damage that he had put into the family came back, creating chaos in his wake. Richard somehow had chosen his grandson of his first wife as his heir. Surprisingly, Mary was then made executor of both the will and of maintaining and taking care of her step-grandson. 
Mary was now forced to defend herself not only from other members of this large family, but also from neighbors who were now looking at the massive land holdings across North Wales and into England with greed and desire. Most likely, though, they thought they could easily outfox this woman, who they saw likely as a feeble and easily overcome emotional woman. They were in for a bit of a surprise as Mary used her connections in the courts and in Wales to continue to defend herself and fend off the worst of those who sought to take the prize. Her fight was never, ever over, realistically, though, because even when one set of nobility or gentry were pushed away, there was always another one just kicking around waiting to get a piece. And therefore, it was the case that in 1662, the Duke of Buckingham from James I's court was able to win away control of the Buckley estate from Mary and eventually to marry off the young ward to a daughter of his rather than to someone who would work with Mary in her maintaining control for as long as possible. Eventually, she tried to seek recompense, appealing, surprisingly, to old Welsh inheritance laws. Somewhat a random idea from an English-born woman, but credit for trying, at least. She also took it to the Parliament to see if she could get a resolution in the House of Commons, going so far as to trying to create a bill, but the House was not having any of that. It shows, however, just how fierce of an opponent she was and how hard and long she fought to try and maintain control. She would eventually settle for an annual payment of around £600 that gave her a wealthy retirement that certainly did not return her lands for her to manage nor control over the great estates that she had previously controlled. She was neither foolish or unconstant woman as her contemporaries such as Sir John Bodville tried to label her. She was a determined and fierce woman who understood her political place and was able to use that as well as her legal understanding to try and fight tooth and nail for her rights in a male-dominated society. This might seem like a depressing example because she lost, but at the same time, when you consider where she was having to come from and the fight she was having to make, and all of the different moving parts, it's an amazing achievement that she was able to get as far as she did. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, 
and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Moving on from Mary, we now look at the life of Alice Ferk Griffith, another North Walian daughter of nobility born about 1520 of a literary family where her father and grandfather were considered to be contributors to the Welsh literary tradition. Her cousin, Richard Davies, was the translator of the Bible into Welsh, Along with that, her father was said to have kept a well-stocked library, which likely cultivated their literary tradition. Alice and her sisters, Catherine and Gwen, followed their father into writing via poetry and prose. Alice became the most successful of the three girls. She wrote poetry with collaborators in her family and with some who were outside of it. It led to a great deal of confusion over which of her writings belonged to her and which of them were mostly done by others that she contributed to. Matched with that was the idea that women were writing poetry during this period as mere amateurs, unworthy of respect, who did not really deserve the attention they got. And it did make it a lot more difficult for scholars to identify her poems because of this. As Dr. Bowen puts it, it, this uncertainty about authorship suggests the relative lack of power and authority invested in the contemporary female voice as a distinct and distinctive one in the literary sphere. Women were doubly barred from formal poetic circles, both by their gender and by their status as amateurs. It has been felt that the only reason why her compositions survive at all was because she was associated with these collaborators who were usually male members of her family, thus giving her poems more weight in the eyes of those contemporaries who might have dismissed her out of hand. Of course, this also makes it harder to recognize these women, like Alice, as distinctive authors. Their verses now conflagrations with male authors might have allowed them to publish their writings, but it left little credit for them for centuries afterward. 
Alice in her writings addressed ideals which she saw as love over family duty. In her own writings, she wanted to be married to a handsome man that would defend her honor and would be a brilliant, highly educated individual, not someone who was well-placed, well-financed, but also old and ugly. It was something that her heart wanted, but something that society as a whole, and certainly in noble circles, did not normally provide. As we mentioned earlier, being married often meant married to an older man. Her writings in general showed that she knew her society, and at least in writing, bucked against its norms. Her style seemed to be both playful, sarcastic, and very much bound in the ground-level ideas of sex and love. Her writings to her father, which featured a number of poems, showed that she felt that his remarriage to a younger woman was something of a scandal, and her own annoyance over a premarital relationship that her husband had once had also was a part of her writing, and it showed how often a feature of her society that had been built about being married for non love-related reasons was not something she tolerated or wanted, and thus creating an author who presented an understanding of love and marriage, which was very modern in its perception, but certainly outside of its time and place for a lot of people. So our final example of elite women, once again lifting from Dr. Bowen's book, is Catherine Phillips, or a.k.a. the Matchless Orinda, as she went by as a pen name sometimes. She was from an English family, but was married to a Welshman from Cardigan, James Phillips. James was an MP, Member of Parliament, for the area, working in the Parliament during the era of Cromwell. He was a considered to be a moderate Presbyterian, but still loyal to the Parliament and to Cromwell. His wife, however, had obvious royalist leanings. One of her poems, as an example, is entitled Upon the Double Murder of King Charles I, so it seems rather clear where her positions lied. Catherine was considerably younger than her husband, once again pointing this out. She was also a second wife, but his duties in London meant that she was likely left alone a great deal of the time with her education she was able to expound on her ideals and write her own opinions. Something that, of course, a lot of elite women gained was the ability to write and to read and to have the time to do so, let's be honest. This is where we get some of her royalist sympathies. Her writings to her fellow women in her writing circle or cadre were both intimate and romantic. Some scholars debate whether she should be considered a lesbian writer but we have no evidence that writing led to anything more than just that, an expression of love rather than an actual physical relationship. And so, at most, we can point to what would be considered bisexual leanings, at least in prose. In her more political writings, she took on famous Puritan Vavasor Powell, claiming that the Christian believer built his kingdom, or Christ, on the blood of the king. She pled for Prince Charles to return to Britain to take back control from these killers. And these royalist leanings 
obviously aren't exactly understated. However, Philip's writing would also create slander for James, which made her have to stand up for herself. She would actually claim to him that she loved him and that her life was his. However, her errors were her own, which sounds sweet, but it also means she could attack other people's political stances while claiming they were hers alone as a weak woman, not that of the family. Um, kind of like a Twitter bio basically saying your comments are, are yours alone and not those of your company. She was considered controversial for another reason. She was an English-only writer, obviously coming from England. Thus, as much respect as she might have had for Welsh, she never contributed to it, and in her own writings, respected the language, but almost as a feature of the past, something that most Welsh-speaking bards and poets at the time were doing, so she wasn't alone in this. But for some... That was a cons controversial position in a controversial situation, and some people disrespect her for it. Yet, some consider her bardic-like poetry as important and something to be lauded. She was, if not Welsh by birth and language, she was adopted by many in the community, and that that stitched them together as more and more English speakers moved to Wales and vice versa. Finally, let's talk about a woman who is not at the center of Welsh gentry and politics, someone who we only know from what is written about her, not from her own comments, and that is Gwen Berk Ellis of Denbyshire. And this edition is a rather peculiar one because Gwen is brought up to the court in Wales in 1594 for one very particular reason. She was accused of being a witch. Witch hunts in Wales were never a common thing and convictions were almost so rare as to be non-existent. But nonetheless, it does, however, show that a dynamic for women who feature in the class outside of the Welsh gentry it gives us an understanding of at least some of their lived experience and therefore adds to our understanding. At 42 years old, Gwen was brought to the Bishop of Asaph, William Hughes. In her appearance before him, she refuted the accusations about her troubling, in quotes, activities as a local soothsayer, cunning woman, and alleged witch. Gwen, at this point, had been married three times and when she appeared in front of the court, and after her first two husbands died, she married a man by the name of John App Morris. But it was debated how sincere this marriage was, as it appeared they did not live together at the time. She made her living through spinning cloth and making linen clothing to be sold, as well as medicines, which would include plasters and salves for ill and diseased animals. She was a woman who was making her living for herself and was considered to be a member of the community. However, she was also a dealer of charms and an admitted soothsayer. Basically, she would predict the future. In a world where magic was considered real, this would be an issue, particularly as local folk magic was being reinterpreted by a Puritan society as something being pushed by the devil. 
keep in mind up until this point, typically this kind of localized magic was considered normal and considered part of society. It would continue for years after and really considered situation continues now. Her first accuser was another woman who would claim that she had created a situation by soothsaying for a local gentry woman uh, trying to find out when the death of a rival family would happen, at least the head of that family. Witnesses from the local area were then brought in as the case got brought forward. And all of these men, and of course they were men, then claimed that she had used magic to create unrest and that she was a well-known witch. They would consistently say that she was using her soothsaying to predict things, that she was obviously showing witchly tendencies, for lack of a better word. When she was eventually taken before the Great Sessions later in that year of 1594, she would be convicted and hung as a witch. Likely what convicted her was the fact that was something generally considered popular in Welsh culture at the time, soothsaying and charm-making, which, as I said earlier, had been something that had been around, and we have evidence of, going back at the very least to Roman times, when curses and blessings were written out onto tablets and then tossed into water sources or buried across Britain. This kind of luck-making or, or predictions that all still exist today, by the way, and have post-dated the Puritan era, were something of a norm at this point in time. And it was something that people expected in a way, and certainly in a place where Wales was, which was largely a rural area, people like this were considered important. They were no different than basically consulting the farmer's almanac to try and find out what the weather is going to be this year. They, they were... they played a part in society that, especially one where a lot of the pre-modern ideas and understandings were built around, you know, appeals to God or gods, uh, angels, or other figures of deep belief or in magical understandings. And so all of these things would be considered very normal, but in the wrong situation and at the wrong point would get you into trouble with the officials. And certainly that's what happened with this lady. One of the few that was executed for being a witch in Wales. So with all of that, and with this discussion of women in history, we will continue forward with some more of this later on as we go through into the 1800s and the 1700s. Uh, I want to continue to add to that story so that we stop passing it by and ignoring it because now we're getting more and more written evidence and, and women themselves are writing their own ideas and their own concepts down so that we can refer to them and use them in the stories, which I think are important. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History, 
podcast if you uh, check that out. Or conversely, if you'd like to help with the funding of materials for this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you, everybody. I hope you have a great week. Take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.